0: Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage of Monaco 24. This week, we remember the life of Queen Elizabeth II.
1: I cannot lead you into battle. I do not give you laws or administer justice. But I can do something else. I can give you my heart and my devotion to these old islands and all the peoples of our Brotherhood of Nations.
0: Plus, a global reaction to
2: her death. The Queen herself remained very popular here. She visited Canada, I think, 22 times during her reign, and she famously called it
0: a home away from home. All that and much more in the next hour on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show looking back on the life of Britain's former monarch. Here is Monaco's Andrew
1: Muller.
3: Queen Elizabeth II occupied her throne for so many decades that for many British subjects and Commonwealth citizens, it will be a while before they become accustomed to having anyone else's silhouette on the obverse of their coins. Yet, had her uncle not been introduced to an American divorcee in 1931, her long and singularly serene reign might never have occurred. When Edward VIII abdicated in 1936 in order to marry Wallis Simpson, he passed the crown to the oldest of his brothers, Prince Albert, the Duke of York. Albert, shortly to become better known as King George VI, reluctantly accepted the responsibility, and with it the knowledge that his ten-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, would eventually become Queen. George might have been less concerned if he could have been reassured in advance of the calibre of job she would do. Whatever one's views of the rights or wrongs of leaving accidents of birth to decide a country's head of state, governor of its church and commander-in-chief of its armed forces, it would be both difficult and churlish to deny that Elizabeth acquitted herself ably. She lived a long life under constant scrutiny without perpetrating a single notable indiscretion. The example of her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, demonstrates the difficulty of this feat. She endured the immense, scarcely imaginable boredom of ceremonial life with patient composure. And during an epoch in which Britain underwent immense and extraordinary change, her imperturbable professionalism was key to the preservation of one of its most archaic institutions, her own job. Elizabeth was born on April 21, 1926, and became queen upon the death of her father on February the 6th, 1952. She was 25.
4: Imagine, if you can, our young Queen's feelings. As with her husband beside her, she is slowly born towards the hours-long ceremony of pomp, circumstance and dedication, consecrating her as Queen of all the nations.
3: Had she wanted to be crowned at exactly the right moment to watch her nation reinvent itself, she could not have timed it better. Great Britain was dazed and exhausted by its efforts during World War II, in which Princess Elizabeth had served as a mechanic with the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service. The country was embarking on the period of which US Secretary of State Dean Acheson would later remark that it had lost an empire and not yet found a role. The first Prime Minister to visit her at Buckingham Palace for his confidential weekly consultation with the Sovereign was an imposing ghost of Britain past, a 70-something Winston Churchill undertaking his comeback residency at 10 Downing Street. The Queen doubtless had her opinions on the significant events of her time on the throne. Probably the single most telling observation that can be made of her rule is that we are certain of almost none of them. She understood acutely the peculiar irony of her role of possessing immense theoretical and symbolic power while being altogether forbidden from explicitly wielding it. She was, however, acutely aware of the potence of her presence at crucial junctures and the gravitas that she accumulated as the years passed. She accomplished arguably her greatest diplomatic triumph late in life, when in 2011 she undertook her first state visit to the Republic of Ireland, during which she bowed before a memorial to generations of Irish people who had fought Britain for their freedom. A little over a year later, she participated in a public handshake with Martin McGuinness, Northern Ireland's Deputy First Minister, who, as a senior IRA commander, had been at least tangentially involved in the 1979 murder of the Queen's cousin, Earl Mountbatten. It was uh, a moment, for me anyway, to, as Deputy First Minister, show my respect to the Union's people of the North and to extend through Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the hand of friendship, peace, and reconciliation. On the one notable occasion that she did make a public relations misstep, it was substantially due to expecting better from her subjects. In the febrile days following the death of her daughter-in-law, Diana, Princess of Wales, in 1997, the Queen was clearly among that constituency of Britons who could not understand why so many of her compatriots were behaving like the chorus of an amateur provincial theatre's poorly reviewed production of Evita.
1: I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her
3: death. With obvious reluctance, she allowed herself to be bullied into the public display of grief that was demanded, probably wondering what had become of a proverbially stoic, phlegmatic and understated, yet ruthless and determined people who'd once taught the world to play cricket at Bayonet Point. It is rare for anybody to live so long having so few unkind words spoken of them. Rare is still for anyone to spend that long life occupying such a public role, head of state of 16 countries, head of a 53-member commonwealth, and attracting so little criticism. Britain's rumbustious tabloid press and vigorous satirical tradition have frequently made savage sport of her largely useless relatives, but have been unable to concoct a caricature of the Queen any more malicious than that of a somewhat frumpy grandmother. The country that crowned Queen Elizabeth II in 1952 would not recognise the country that will crown its next monarch. While everything around Buckingham Palace has been utterly transformed, reformed or deformed, there is precisely zero serious organised Republican sentiment at large in the United Kingdom. It will be interesting and illuminating to see if her successor at the end of their reign can claim the same. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Admittedly, Queen Elizabeth II was a powerful figure worldwide. We've asked some of our international contributors to discuss her
5: impact. There's a a very close connection between the the Japanese royals and the British royals. It stretches back to the 19th century. Queen Victoria's son came to Japan um, in 1869, and it goes on from there. Hirohito visited the UK in the 20s referred to George V, actually uh, the Queen's uh, grandfather, as a, he spoke of him as a second father, and then it goes on from there. Akihito came as crown prince to the Queen's coronation, and then as emperor, he he visited a lot. And I think you know you saw in the message today from Fumio Kishida, the Prime Minister, he he spoke you know in a very sincere way um, of the sadness, passed on his condolences, but he did also speak about the Queen's role in cementing the relationship, and I think that's. That's been a very interesting uh, process over the over the decades since the Second World War. Um, you know, it was absolutely critical, the Queen's role in that. You can imagine um, Hirohito, who was emperor during the war, came to London in 1971, didn't get the warmest reception. And the Queen spoke at a dinner and said, let, you know, we can't pretend the past has never existed, but what we can do is, is never let these things happen again. And, you know, she, she reiterated that in 1998 when Hirohito's son, who was, by then emperor, when he came, it was still a difficult relationship. These visits were still uh, very controversial, you know, and you realise now, since then, it's, it's been smoothed over. But she played a really important role in that diplomacy and, and Prime Minister Kishida um, was acknowledging that today.
1: What you spoke about there is, uh, to speak about events, which are in, not necessarily in the most recent past. Uh, what was the Queen's voice or her presence or relevance to Japan in the last
5: couple of years? Well, Naruhito, who's the current emperor, um, he he studied at Oxford, and so did his wife, and they they visited Windsor Castle. They 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 knew the Queen and and her husband uh, Philip, and uh, you know their daughter Aiko, did summer school at Eton. There there are continuing links, I think. You know, there's a sort of a sense of uh, you know I think mutual respect, and yes, it's certainly true to say how relevant is it to people's lives in Japan today. Not very relevant, probably. But I think you, you certainly got a sense of uh, the respect that was felt. And I think Kishida conveyed that very well.
1: Fiona, thank you very much indeed for that. Thomas Lewis in Toronto, a part of the Commonwealth. Justin Trudeau photographed not so long ago holding the Queen's hand in, in, in the United Kingdom. The warmth and the sparkle between them was, was absolutely evident. How is a, a member of the Commonwealth dealing, you know, re- responding to her death?
2: Well, I think Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, and as you say, he made a very emotional speech yesterday. He was with the Canadian cabinet in Vancouver for a cabinet retreat, and he made a very brief statement, but his eyes looked pretty pretty wet and pretty red, and his voice seemed to tremble a little bit, because his, his own relationship with the Queen is a pretty unique one. He first met Queen Elizabeth when he was only a child, when his father Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, was uh, then Prime Minister of Canada and of course then fast forward to 2015 when he himself was elected uh, to be Prime Minister of Canada. He had a new uh, sort of relationship of his own with the monarch and he spoke very affectionately about uh, that. As you said, that meeting between the Queen uh, and Justin Trudeau, he said in his statement yesterday that he still couldn't quite come to terms with the fact that that meeting uh, was was going to be his last meeting with her, given how warm that relationship was and how fondly he remembered it, Emma.
1: He said that she was one of his favourite people, which seems like a slightly strange tone to strike when you have um, the the world leaders issuing not necessarily wildly dissimilar speeches and and, and tributes. There's that that sort of warmth and humanity, actually, that, that I think many of us found rather unusual and rather striking, Thomas.
2: Yes, I think it was. And again, I think that speaks, Emma, to just how unusual in many ways, the fact that Justin Trudeau was first introduced to the Queen when he was a, was a child and has maybe a relationship in that sense and that many other world leaders uh, don't, don't have and, and don't enjoy. I think it's an interesting tone that he set because, as you say, Emma, it was a really sort of human, a, a human speech, I thought, that he gave. And I think that comes at a time, especially over the past year and a half, when you look at opinion polls here, maybe resonating a little with what Andrew was talking about earlier in Australia, that, you know, affection uh, for the monarch key for Canada to retaining the sort of British monarch as the head of state here, that appetite does seem to be waning pretty consistently over the years. That said, those same surveys did show that the Queen herself remained very very popular here. She visited Canada, I think, 22 times during her reign, and she famously called it a home away from home on her last visit, I think it was, uh, in 2010. I think, again, this process of, of changing the banknotes here, uh, stamps, for example, those kind of things. And there was an interesting moment yesterday when the news is moving quite quickly during a citizenship ceremony when apparently the judge obviously people who become new citizens of canada have to pledge allegiance to the queen but there was an uncertainty of who the head of state was at the time and then she she uh, picked up the ceremony where they paused it from uh, saying that they would now be pledging their allegiance to king charles the third so so yes we'll, we'll see how how the relationship continues um on uh, you know as this ceremonial aspect of this now continues and um, then to the longer term but i think as well just briefly if i could say the relationship obviously between uh, the royal family and canada's indigenous populations has been a huge focus of national debate here particularly over the past year year and a half and and the role of canada's colonial history is also something that's playing a big part in the conversations here too uh, on various sides of the debate um following yesterday's um events in scotland I mean.
1: thank you very much indeed for that thomas um Andrew, may we pick up on that? The fact that we are, you know, as part of the Commonwealth, um, we have Canada, we have Australia, and we we had yesterday Prince Charles saying, I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms and the Commonwealth, and by countless people around the world. Could we just touch briefly on, on the Queen's role in keeping the Commonwealth together at a moment when arguably there are, there, there are signs that it could be splitting in, into different directions?
5: Uh, it...
3: By common consent, it does seem to have been one of her genuinely great animating passions, along with horse racing, uh, the Commonwealth. And interestingly, it did, again, as we were saying earlier, in the the same way that she acquired more cachet the longer she stayed on the throne, uh, that seemed to have that seemed to hold true for the commonwealth as well that this 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 organization which she stewarded became more attractive the longer she was in charge of it in 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 recent years we have of course seen countries joining the commonwealth that were never part of the british empire and that don't really have any great historical association with the united kingdom uh, rwanda and mozambique uh, to name but two it it does seem to be a club that people still want to join there i think it, for certainly for developing recovering up and coming nations there's a sense that when admitted to this club you have been recognized uh, as a sensible stable democracy uh the you know the commonwealth over the years has applied its uh its criteria for measurement. It it has suspended members, it has booted members out when they have lapsed from those standards. Uh, And yet, strangely, it it has acquired a value not necessarily attached to the association with Britain, uh, but to the association with the Crown.
4: You
0: are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24. This week also, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brullet, have been reviewing the paper for us together with Monaco 24's security correspondent, Ben Ozog.
6: It is such a moment. Uh, and, uh, and and obviously, of course, what we're, we're reading already in the papers is so much about the backstory around this, the preparations that, of course, this has been in play for decades. Uh, but then there's something, you know, and then, of course, we had a we had a call uh, last night. Emma, you were on it. Uh, all of our editors also talking about the tone of coverage, what had to be delivered. And it really sort of struck you that even though many of the broadcasters and we're speaking about the British broadcasters, did a very good job. You could see that, despite all of the preparation, all that we'd heard, that they were still a little bit on on the back foot. Uh, and yes, that uh, the graphics and everything and and the music all seemed right, and and there was the black ties and all of these things, but there was still a sense of this this disbelief, which brings us back to we, we may never see anything like this in our lifetime when it comes to to marking a particular moment.
1: Um, let me bring in Terry because you and I have both got experience of the the Britain's national broadcaster and the fact that this has been rehearsed, hasn't it, lots and lots and lots of times. This was a moment that every reporter would turn up on their shift thinking... Is it going to happen today? And some people were wouldn't have minded, and other people were rather happy to be in the background. But I mean, the, the scene inside the BBC newsroom yesterday, by all accounts, was of lots of people standing up, nobody sitting down, lots of whiteboards, and lots of men sitting around or standing around drawing on the whiteboards, discussing discussing tactics.
7: Oh well, yes, I remember many Sunday mornings being called into work for a, for a obituary rehearsal, uh, and just hoping that, uh, firstly, that people didn't actually mistakenly think that. That the real thing had happened, and that uh, didn't get rumours didn't get out of the newsroom, that everybody had been called in. But yes, you did rehearse these things, you did plan these things. But it, there is a certain element of chance, of and of things not. Going according to plan, and you can never quite be prepared for it happening on your ship.
1: Indeed, uh, as I think was 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 case slightly yesterday, because I don't think anybody was really ready for it. To be honest, I mean, when are you ever ready for something like this? But no, let's go back to the papers and have a look at uh, the various commentaries that we can see. I mean, the Targus Ansaiga, and it's and it's dispatched to people's inboxes every morning. The the, the commentaries: Elizabeth's life was one of privilege and sacrifice, and even those who resented the former acknowledged the latter.
8: That is oddly true, isn't it, and related, as Tyler hinted, to this very person. Because if we think about it in an abstract manner in today's world, as in a monarchy, a dynasty, um, where, well, title, it's it's like a person that isn't actually human, is more closer to a goddess than a human. um, It would be so odd, and inheriting titles, inheriting privilege, and so on. But because she had this kind of modest side to her, she was super correct about everything as opposed to some other members of the family, Um, she got away with it despite these times. And that also hints at that times will be shifting, of course, very soon. There's no way to replicate that as strongly as she did. So these tiny dissenting voices, if you will, that kind of hint at or reflect on how odd monarchies are in in this day and age, they're actually indicative. They will obviously grow in the next few days, but there's still quite a strong focus on Signified saying goodbye to quite an, a unique woman.
1: Have you spotted any any dissenting voices? I mean, the little quote from the Tagus Ansiger was a, was about as, as as sort of controversial as it got.
8: There's actually very few, which is surprising. I mean, even the likes of Narendra Modi, or the Hindu um, newspapers in a former colony that had a, a breakup from the empire with millions of dead, um, is still fairly positive, remembers fondly the... The many visits that the Queen has made to these respective countries. In El País, where obviously the Queen goes by Isabella II, not by Elizabeth II, it's actually quite tricky to navigate because they translate Carlos III as well. Um, there, on the, at the sideline, there's an article as in the last visit to Spain was around controversies around Gibraltar. So there's these national peculiarities because as opposed to the queen who is remembered quite fondly generally, the relationship of these places with the UK, as such, politically and so on, can be quite tricky at times. So sometimes these kind of pe- peculiarities and small disputes are interwoven with um, general condolences.
1: At the heart of it, Tyler, though, is a woman who was who is constant throughout, throughout her reign, not just in her tone and her approach and her dignity, but how she looked. It was astonishing. You, she was instantly recognisable by the way that she 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 dressed and things got really quite good fun near the end of her reign when there were some sort of a, you know bright lime green suits that you would have just thought my goodness this is this is daring this is a daring choice but there was something absolutely outstanding about the way that she came across in terms of her style
6: well, indeed, and and you could say that there you talk about, of course, the, you know the house, but it's it's almost like there was a house within a house uh, because of the frock coats and and the dresses and the suits and and of course the hats um as well and and this is very much part of the brand. Ben and we were we were talking about this a little bit earlier this is 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 really sort of representative. it's it's emblematic when you think of all of the pageantry that there is this this sense of style which has sort of, has nothing to do with whether it was the nineteen seventies uh, or whether it was it was twenty twenty two. It was it was her own thing, but at the same time also it was something which also passed down to to many members of of the family. At least certainly on uh, on the women's side of the family, anyway. And, and that is, um, again, is 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 quite re- quite remarkable because yes, we can look at uh, you know, the Spanish royal family and we can look at the Belgian royal family, etc. And maybe they don't get off, obviously as much airtime in in the English language press, but there is something very peculiar but i say peculiar in a positive way because it was a mark of of this ex- exceptional brand
1: it is a mark of an exceptional exceptional brand i mean how did you react to it yesterday
6: it was uh, well. I guess you know, on one side you, you have your your news head on, and and you know the messaging was it was immediately striking, uh, and and of course worrying, uh, and and it makes you think about all the things that that we would have to do as an organisation, but then also makes you think back. And you have sort of the personal side and and thinking about the relationship that. That of course, you know that that I've had with this monarch for for five plus decades. Thinking about growing up in Canada in school, where you know, of course every morning we would stand up and sing the national anthem, but at the end of day, not not every school, but but certainly many schools in Canada, the end of the day was marked by singing "God Save the Queen." Uh, that was how classes. That's how the school day at at four fifteen or four o'clock in the afternoon would would come to an end, and so. When we talk about that sense of Commonwealth and, and of course, here you had not in every classroom, but certainly probably in the principal 's office i didn 't spend much time there thankfully, uh, but there was there was always of course, for assembly, there was always a picture of of the monarch um, whether it was uh, on, on stage if you were uh, in the theater or whether it was in the gymnasium, and it was this this the, of course this image and this mark which. You know, I think about Canada in the 1970s, um, you know, the nation at that point was just a little over a century old. This was very much about a sense of place, a sense of belonging um, and bonding uh, the country maybe to something bigger. And now moving on to a highlight of my show, The Stack, about the world of magazines.
0: Monaco's Thomas Lewis paid a visit to a new magazine shop in Toronto. It's called Issues.
9: So we opened in Toronto on July 13th of 2022. I'm a magazine art director, so I've been working in this industry for about 10 years now. And when I travel, I seek out interesting independent newsstands to gather inspiration, to do research. And Toronto hasn't had one in a very long time. So it's been an idea that's been percolating for a few years now. And I started to take it really seriously in April of last year. I actually sent Jeremy Leslie at My Culture an email and said, "Okay, I think I'm going to do this." And that was sort of the moment where it started to become to become real. So, a full year, 14 months later, we opened our doors. The space looks a bit like an art gallery and it feels a bit like a record store which was sort of the initial intention so one of the things that was important when I set out with my interior design partner company company was to make sure that the magazines were displayed with the same kind of care attention and love that goes into making these independent design objects and so one of the things that was important was making sure that we could actually see as many titles as possible so when you walk into the shop you are First thing you see is this big beautiful table. It's bright blue. It is the focal point of the shop and the sort of magazines laid out on top of it change regularly. We clear this table off for workshops and field trips and use it as a gathering space. Around the walls of the shop. The shop's quite quite narrow, not huge. We're sort of I think about a 300 square foot footprint. But along the walls are our shelves, they're triangular in shape, they're very geometric, they're very minimal and on those shelves are magazines facing you, sort of full face. You can see the whole cover and they are lined. Um, We don't have enough inventory yet that they're all sort of overlapping each other but that'll be fun when we get there. And one of the interesting things about the space are the colors. So the colors themselves are there's actually quite quite a lot of diversity in color in this space and that was one of the designer Rochelle Leblanc's insights was that magazines themselves are so there is a lot of visual clutter in the store. There could be a lot of visual clutter because magazine covers change so much and there's no rhyme or reason from one magazine's cover to the next. They don't match necessarily. There's no uniformity. And so by using soft colors, we've got sort of a dove gray, a, a light, light pale peach, and a butter yellow in our shelves. By using those colors, you actually have the magazine sort of start to soften and blend back and the cognitive load isn't quite enough or isn't quite as much as it could be. Jeremy Leslie was a massive, massive help for some of those sort of logistical questions. How do I actually get magazines? How many magazines do I need? How do I curate them? That was really, really helpful. And sort of, how do I sell them online? Those sorts of questions were super helpful to me, right? Someone who's producing magazines on the regular. I'm used to these kind of monthly, quarterly at maximum sort of timelines. So to work on something for a year actually felt really painfully slow.
10: (laughs) Hopefully not too painful. Was that were you sort of learning along the way, and I guess did the idea sort of change in that time as you were sort of getting closer to building out the shop, designing it, having the the magazines on display?
9: Yeah. I think that it's been really interesting to be on the other side of this industry, right? So sort of behind the scenes of the industry, I'm used to being part of the production team that's actually putting a title together. And so to start to understand how distribution works to how magazines get where they get and to um, see what, what customers are actually picking up and interested in reading and excited about or haven't been able to in some way. So that's taught me a lot. Um, And it has sort of changed subtly the way that I bring in inventory, and I think also the way I design magazines on the other side, which has been interesting. I mean, I believe in independent media pretty strongly. I believe that that is the next sort of incarnation of magazines, that that niche independent titles, that lower frequencies, smaller press runs are, are the way we're heading sort of away from the commercial titles and one of the sort of theories that I have is that here in Canada our independent market has not grown all that much and there's a whole whack of reasons, many of them rooted in money for why that might be the case but one of my theories is that it might also be exposure. There might be a lot of people with magazine ideas sort of percolating but not understanding that these independent smaller rent titles exist elsewhere in the world. So I'm hoping that folks being able to see them, they might start to be able to see themselves and the thing that they want to create in those spaces.
10: Maybe you can give us a sort of a little tour of the kind of magazines we've got here and maybe why why you're so keen to include some of them and to be a sort of retailer in Toronto for them.
9: As far as which titles we brought in I am the first retailer for a lot of these publications, and, and publications that, that we know and love, things like Pitt out of the UK, and Noble Rot for food, sort of looking around. I came for Couscous, which is a more recent launch. Um, Stoned, the Korean surfing journal. I'm the first Canadian retailer for a lot of these folks, and so that's, that's exciting. Also wild. We had to pay to have something shipped across border, across the sea, to get it here. I mean, I still have to do that, but now at least folks can come and take a flick through. Some of these titles, when they actually landed in the store, it was the first time I had flipped through them in real life. So things like the American Football Journal Spiral I'd never seen in real life, only online. And that experience of flipping through it is so different.
10: It seems such like a simple thing, doesn't it? But it makes such a difference of actually seeing whether the publisher made it a really big sort of format or a or a small little bookish thing it's sort of there is still a magic to that
9: absolutely i think besides such an interesting example of that they're a canadian independent title they are based in montreal and in toronto we haven't had sort of immediate access to them in the same way so i think a lot of us have followed their journey through the national magazine awards and the awards they're winning and online and yeah it's it's much longer than i anticipated too They were in here actually. Um, We're out of, we we sold out and we'll get more, but they were in here a couple of weeks ago taking a poke around, rearranging shelves to take photos.
10: Oh, fantastic. Yeah.
9: Which I think is the other kind of interesting thing. We have a lot of Toronto based or Canada based startup titles in here that I'm really excited about. Um, Serviette, which is published by Max Megan, is a food magazine. This issue's theme is food is everything, and so it's sort of seed all the way through to food on the table. It's really beautiful. We've sold so many copies of it, and it's been fun to have Max part of this community too. And Darby, which is a Canadian soccer culture journal, which is a magazine that couldn't have existed in Canada a couple of years ago, right? We're in this moment where, where soccer or football is sort of becoming exciting in Canada for the first time in a long time, and so that's published between Vancouver and Toronto.
8: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
3: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of
8: finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: You're listening to The Curator and this month... I am reporting from Brazil, from Monaco, because of the Brazilian elections. There'll be a series of reports. And of course, my weekly global countdown had to be my home country. Let's have a listen.
11: Given your location right now, it's no surprise uh, guessing what charts you've been looking at this week, Fernando. It is, of course, Brazil.
0: It is Brazil. And the thing I like about the Brazilian charts, it's mad. It's such a mix of genres. Georgina, I mean, even though I know fairly well about Brazilian music, there are a lot of new artists that I actually didn't know. So I discovered thanks to this research uh, for the Global Countdown. So I hope you enjoy this uh, kind of a little bit of a crazy ride. That's all I can tell you for now.
11: Excellent. So what's number five?
0: Let's hear a clip of number five. It's from Rio. It's by a rapper called Lennon. Maybe his mother liked John Lennon, but I'm not sure. And also Biel do Furduncinho and Bianca. The song is called Ai Preto. Let's have a listen.
2: That's
0: classic a funk from Rio de Janeiro, those dry beats. It's heavily influenced by the 80s sound of the Miami bass. Uh, you know, with a mix of new electronic music, a little bit of hip hop as well. That's the sound of the favelas. I say the sound of the favelas, but the whole country is listening to that as well. Very central.
11: Yeah. And I love that kind of what was it? It sounded like a sax or something in the in the background. Very sultry.
0: Exactly. It, it, and I love that. They're so open. And the songs as well, Georgina, they're very short. This track is just about two minutes and 20 seconds long, you know. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quick. It's, it's great. It's good for dancing as well.
11: Mm. Now, tell us about number four, Gustavo Lima.
0: That's a different vibe altogether. That's kind of more, you know, if you're suffering uh, and you're bad, you know, drinking tea or something like that it's it's a great example of brazilian country music i'll translate some of the lyrics after this is gustavo lima with termina comigo antes and things with me before <laughs> That's, you know, you know what he's saying, actually, in this song, Georgina, he says, you know, where there is love, the heart doesn't cheat. And then he says to his you know, potential girlfriend, I'm feeling you're distant and I see you're getting better dressed every day, more elegant. But I have a feeling it's not for me. Oh, oh Wow. She's definitely cheating. (laughs) But Brazilians love songs about cheating. It's a crazy thing, you know. (laughs) It it is definitely a trend. Well, not even a trend since I was a child. We've been hearing songs like this, actually.
11: Yeah. Well, let's go on to number three.
0: Number three is an interesting one because it's from Sao Paulo, where I am. It's also funk. But I want to tell you about the difference between the funk from Rio and the funk from Sao Paulo. The funk from Rio. It's more kind of sensual, but also talk about social causes, you know, the life in the favela, you know, criminality, police violence. The one from São Paulo is different. It's it's called funk ostentação, ostentatious funk, which is not my favorite. So basically it's quite bling bling. It's all about helicopters, you know, boat rides, fast cars, and the social side of it, it's not there. So if I may say I'm not a big fan of this track, but we're gonna listen. (laughs) Number 3 is MC Paiva and MC Ryan, casei com a putaria.
4: Sete piranhas, sete mares.
8: Casei com a putaria, não abandono nunca. Adoro a pernoitada, vivência maluca. Em casa, eu roba. Eu sou nato, baby,
0: yes,
10: I'm
0: sorry, MC Pive, MC Ryan. Not a fan. I, th- I think I prefer the funk from Rio.
11: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right, well. Maybe
0: I'm too honest here.
11: <laughs> Do you prefer Ana Castella more?
0: Oh, that's a fun one. Um, and, and again, it's a new genre, actually, in Brazil. Ana Castela, she's only 18. She grew up in the countryside, but she's a big star. But again, you n- remember number four, uh, the countryside, very sad, all about relationships. It was called Agronejo, which is a mix of country music, but with elements from funk and pop. it's not just about suffering. It's about fashion. It's about partying. It's about fun. Let's have a listen. Ana Castella and Melody with... Pipoco. E Eu
9: sou o combo perfeito pra iludir. Yeah,
7: yeah. Se prepara. As banhadeiras não dá pra
2: encarar. As banhadeiras não dá pra encarar. Bota a pigela, chata o carangue, pata vermelha e custa As banhadeiras não dá pra encarar. As banhadeiras não dá pra encarar. Bota a pigela, chata o carangue, a pata vermelha e custa o peixe.
4: Paranapa, <tipos>
0: paranapa. You know what? She is making uh country music kind of cool again, because in the song she's talking about, yes, I'm wearing my cowboy boots and my hat, you know, so, it, she, you know, because we have this image of the countryside about this man singing about long uh, lost, lost blood. This is different. This is quite uh, an injection of, of fresh blood to the country music scene as well.
11: Mm, and fantastic. I mean, I think country music has always existed somewhere on on, a, on the kind of cool meter, if you like, because you've got people like First Aid Kit or various others still kind of pushing that vibe at us. And it's, it's not something to be embarrassed about. And who doesn't love Dolly?
0: Exactly. Well, I absolutely adore her. Uh, maybe Ana Castello become Brazilian Dolly in the future. She's too, <laughs> fa- too far too young, far too young. Uh,
11: and finally, what's your number one pick this week, Fernando?
0: This song has been playing everywhere. I, I went to a bar uh, and they were playing this song. And in, in fact, the song has been t- it's three years old, actually. Uh, but you know those songs that are slow burners? Um, and again... It's, it's kind of a rediscovery of a genre that's been forgotten in the 90s, which is lambada, which involves a lot of hip-shaking, Georgina, I have to say. Um, I think Brazil used to be known for lambada, but it's kind of been forgotten. It's back now, with Nivaldo Marques, Tem Cabaré Essa Noite. We have cabaret tonight. Agora
2: eu tô solteiro, eu vou gritar pra todo.
0: i'm laughing here georgina because i love when it says i you know it's 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 quite (laughs) cute
11: (laughs) (laughs) it's very cute fernando what's on your agenda you're going to be reporting uh politically for us from there
0: Absolutely. It's not just uh, music. Uh, So I might uh, go to debates. Uh, I want to go to the streets as well because people are protesting. Uh, Yesterday, we saw a lot of Bolsonaro supporters for Brazilian Independence Day. Maybe Lula supporters will be out on the streets. So anything related to Brazil, please stay tuned to Monaco 24.
11: Absolutely. Our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco there, joining us from Sao Paulo.
0: And the shortlist for this year's prestigious Booker Prize has been announced. The list includes a novel by the oldest author to be nominated, the 87-year-old Alan Garner's Trickle Walker, and the shortest book to make the list, Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These, at just 116 pages. The historian Helen Castor is one of this year's Booker Prize judges. And tell us more about this year's shortlist.
12: Perhaps the first thing I should say is how difficult it was for us to cut down from a long list of 13 to all of which we felt incredibly committed. So it took a whole day of discussion and anguish. But we ended up with six books, uh, Glory by Noviolet Bulawayo, The Trees by Percival Everett, Treacle Walker, which you've mentioned by the great Alan Garner, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Shehan Karun Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. And incidentally, I, th- I think maybe Treacle Walker has fewer words than <laughs> the Keegan book, even though Small Things Like These has fewer pages. And the last one on the list, um, but certainly not the least, is o William by Elizabeth Strout.
1: Well, let's go through each one in 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 turn and briefly sort of work out w- what it is about each book. I mean, we don't have all day, but we're going to have to try and sort of like pick out what are the bits that really struck you about each each work?
12: Well... In a way, one way of thinking about it is that the list sort of falls into two halves, I suppose. We have three small, quiet books. But when I say small, I don't mean in their subject matter or the power of their writing, because they are miracles of compression. And those three are O. William, Small Things Like These, and Treacle Walker. And they are intimate examinations of what it means to be human in very very different ways um garner's book is almost a magic spell i think it'll feel different every time you go back to it um small things like these examines a very particular moment in irish history uh the uh, cruelty of the catholic church to unmarried mothers 1985 in a small town um but through that, it examines what it takes to try to do the right thing and what that might cost. And then A William by Elizabeth Strout is um, an interior monologue that asks very profound questions about uh, age and class and love and family and utterly absorbing. So those are our three, if you like, more, more intimate books. And then we have three big, rambunctious books that are full of rage. They're very brave books, but they're also extraordinarily funny in their rage um, in a way that carries you along. And those are Glory by Noviolet Bulawayo, which has been described as an African animal farm. Um, In a way, that's that's a good way into it because the characters are all animals. But where Animal Farm was um, a a farm as a microcosm, um, Bulawayo gives us... Uh, the fictional African country of Jedada, um, as a way of retelling Zimbabwean recent history, but also universalizing it. Um, the Trees by Percival Everett is an amazing mashup of genres. It's part detective novel, it's part horror story, it's part slapstick comedy, but it gets to the heart of big questions about history and justice and race in America. And is, then, oh, sorry. sorry. Actually, one more. One yeah, more. Uh, Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan Civil War, uh, Karen Atilika's amazing book. It's riotously off kilter. Our main character wakes up dead and he doesn't know any more about how and why than we do. And the book is an exploration of of who killed him and whether he can still make a difference from the afterlife.
1: Just looking at the, um, the, the, the fact that you called some of the books Miracles of Compression for so long, I don't know about you, but when I have gone and looked at the Booker books on the shelves, a lot of them I could... Actually actually build a small house with they're so huge Um, are we now in a moment when we can actually really re-celebrate the skill of brevity because for so long I've I've had the impression that people have thought that more is more I really hope
12: we are in that moment Um, I mean as judges as a group we were very concerned simply to engage with the books in front of us, not to come in with any preconceptions or any, you know, the, the rules of the book are, are almost that there are no rules. We're looking for the best um, sustained work of fiction of the year, and it's up to us to decide what sustained means. And so we didn't want to rule anything out on the basis of page count. And when we'd read 169 books, we found that some of these very short ones were staying with us most powerfully. And we felt that was something um, that, as you say, more, more can be more, but isn't always.
1: Tell us a little bit about where we are in terms of our reading habits more. I mean, I am delighted to hear that there are short books on offer on the list this year because I have a very short attention span. And I wonder if I am symptomatic of a bigger problem, that we do have a very compressed attention span nowadays. And we talk about the encouragement of picking up these book uh, nominations and, and reading them. Do we need now even more encouragement than ever to pick up a book? It's an interesting question,
12: isn't it? Because I think we all recognise that sense of being bombarded with notifications and temptations to look at what's going on online and the ever-increasing speed of the news cycle and so on. But um, I, I just really hope that one thing that the Booker Prize can do, along with other prizes, is to say these novels are really worth your time. And time, of course, is an elastic thing. I mean, we found, as we read, that some huge doorstop novels zipped by in a moment and then others um some of the short ones on this list it's not that they will take forever to read but they draw you in so deeply and they require as you say a different kind of attention and perhaps the kind of attention that brings you back to think about what you've just read and to dip in again I, i really hope there's still room for that and that's very much what we want to say about these six books and the 13 they were picked from, that they are worth your time. And we've loved spending our time with them. We, we hope everyone else will too.
0: You're listening to The Curator. Let's hear now from Marie Leconte and her splendid new book, Scape: How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Andrew Muller began by asking her whether she had considered what her life would have been like had the internet never been plugged in.
7: That's actually a sentence, I think, in the introduction, where I say, actually, you know, that there's no control group, Marie Le so I have no <laughs> idea, you know, what I would have looked like had there not been internet. And so I've actually, you know, it's an interesting, I think, intellectual exercise, but no, I genuinely, very sincerely have no idea. Because again, so as I talk about in the book, so my dad was a massive nerd. So actually, people bored. I think, so I'm 30 now, people my age usually join the internet a bit later than I did. But because mm. my dad was a massive nerd, I was there like the very, you know, like starting blocks, basically the second I could sort of, touch something as a toddler he was like here's a computer um so yeah no idea not the faintest clue who I could possibly be where I would be presumably I would not be in Britain because I grew up in France maybe not a journalist either no idea (laughs)
3: And it it was it was interesting from me to read from, you know, a a generation or two a bit further down the track, because I I am of the last generation of adult human beings who will ever live, uh, who will have a memory of a time without the Internet. I didn't send an email until I was in my early 30s, I don't think, before listeners get too concerned that I'm not going to make it through this interview. (laughs) I'm generally a very late technological adopter, is my point. The thesis of your book is that it's your generation that grew up on the Internet and worked kind of grown by the internet as well you, you you developed online almost as much as you developed offline
7: yes i so i think what's specific about my generation by which i mean roughly people born between 1985 and 1995 is that actually so you know that. Billions of people who were born as you were, you know, at a time when the internet was not a thing, got to grow up without the internet, got to even be an adult for a while without mm. the internet. I think people who were born, you know, in the late 90s onwards have never known a world in which the internet was a bit of a weird thing, a side thing, you know, they've only ever known a world in which everyone is online, everything happens online, etc. And I think what's specific about us is that we grew up at a time when the internet existed, but was also quite separate from real life, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the examples I give in the book is I had a music blog when I was 13 and I went to a series of gigs behind my parents' backs and I wrote them up because obviously I had, you know, ambitions of becoming a music journalist. So I thought, you know, I'll go to gigs and review them. And it just did not occur to me at any point, you know, my parents could quite easily find a blog that had my first name in my (laughs) reasonably small hometown. And he wrote in my style and was on gigs, you know, on nights when I'd gone to study at a friend's house, Um, which I think is actually quite an interesting example. Because obviously it sounds mad now, but at the time I think the internet felt sufficiently separate from... Real life that I thought that was a feasible way to live my life,
3: but well, which is one of the things that the book chronicles that change from the internet being this kind of wild westy sort of arena where people kind of went in order to get away with things to being this all encompassing thing in which nobody can get away with anything anymore
7: and absolutely, and I think that so I sort of got the idea for the book in lockdown because I realized you know lockdown kind of happened, and then suddenly everyone socialised online. So, you know, Mm. everyone did especially, you know, what was it? Video pub quizzes or whatever. You know, House Party, I think, was the app people were using to kind of drink with their friends via video chats, etc. And and, and I had this very strong, very odd, nearly physical reaction that was oh, no, 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 no. I don't want any part of this. I do not want this. But also feeling oddly violated I suppose where I was like oh no like, everyone's in my house now <laughs> <laughs> Just the internet that was my thing what are you doing and, and yeah so, so I do think that that was really the point at which I was like oh god you know it really like that that change had been coming for quite a long time and happening quite slowly for quite a long time. But I think the pandemic was when real life and the internet just entirely merged and became one. Is there
3: an aspect, do you think, of your relationship to that process, which, which kind of harkens back to that early effort of, of writing a blog about indie rock music, that you, you now do have an attitude to the internet, which is a bit of the, this isn't fair, I liked them when they were on Sub Pop. Kind of thing.
7: Oh yes, no, absolutely, and this is something I struggle with a lot with Twitter because obviously I'm a journalist, I write about politics a lot of the time, so I've been on Twitter for a very long time, and you know all my colleagues are there, my potential future bosses, the people I write about, you know, so much of British politics specifically happens on Twitter. And I have just found it really hard because obviously it's been expected, yeah, expected of me to behave professionally on there because it is the <laughs> professional medium you know, that people use in my industry, and and I really try. And I got in a lot of trouble in previous jobs for just tweeting stupid jokes and so on. And yet, I think a few years ago, weirdly, I had this moment where I was like, "No, hang on, that's not fair." Like, I was in a, exactly <laughs> as you said, as I know, I was here first. That was my thing. Fine, you all decided to join, but that does not mean I should stop behaving in the way. Again, I should stop using Twitter as a blog, which is effectively what I'm doing, and not using it as LinkedIn, which is what a lot of people are doing.
3: But that is, is I think at the, at the heart of what uh, Escape is talking about that there's been this inc- extraordinary process of centralization of most people's you know experience of the internet. You write very evocatively about those early periods in which you could kind of range over all these weird blogs and niche bulletin boards and it was clearly a very empowering thing for a lot of people who were able to find their tribe in a way that they might not not have been able to before. But what's your sense of what drove the sort of centralization towards Facebook and Twitter, if everybody kind of liked and valued the idea of just being able to interact with their own kind? Are people just fundamentally lazy? Is that what the kind of big social media platforms have capitalised on?
7: I think partly, yes, people are just quite lazy. Also, I think, and this is something actually amusingly, I'd not realised was happening when it was happening, and it's only in hindsight that I got it, which is that for a very long time, we kind of flocked from platform to platform. So mm. be that, you know, from one blog platform to the next, from, you know, Bebo, I didn't quite use, but a lot of people used a lot, to MySpace, to no, other I, places. I remember the
3: MySpace exodus.
7: Well, yes, no, exactly. So, you know, we kind of moved, everything felt very mobile and we, we didn't really have a set home or anything. So when Facebook started happening and Twitter started happening, I think a lot of us saw that as, oh, you yeah, know, that that's just the next step and then we'll probably move on again in a few years to whatever happens next. And I think it is a, it ended up being quite a structural issue in that nothing else came after that. And it was like, oh, oh, so we're stuck here. Because even, you know, <laughs> and that's quite recent, because even as recently as sort of like 2013, 2014, 2015, I remember there was still, could not remember the names of them, which I think proves my point, but several, you know, several apps, several social media platforms launched. And I think a few of us, obviously there was always the thing, if a thing launched, you have to go and register your username to be like, if it does go big, I want to have my name on there. But none of them quite took off. And I think that that was very much a change, you know, between eras of the internet.
3: I mean, having chronicled the progress of the internet to this point, and and done it, I think it's fair to say, uh, with this sort of resistance to the idea that online and real life have become the same thing, though clearly I think they have for a lot of people. How do you end up thinking about how it might evolve from here on? Do you, do you think that Twitter and Facebook are basically an endpoint. Will somebody come up with something else? Brilliant. Are you excited about the metaverse? (laughs) I speak as somebody who could not be less excited about the metaverse.
7: Oh, I hate it so much. (laughs) I was an absolute burning passion. So I was having that chat actually with my little brother. He works in tech, actually. And we talked about, you know, kind of the future of AI and the metaverse, etc. And he, he did kind of say, which was quite humbling. He was like, it is probably the future, whether you want it to be or not. But you know, And that made me feel very old. But then I suppose that's kind of the point, and I think I mentioned that in the conclusion of the book, which is that one of the reasons I wanted to write it now is because I can tell that I'm moving on now and I'm no longer part of that generation willing to jump again from, like, branch to branch like a sort of like monkey around the internet following the latest trend. And I worry, you know, I will kind of be like someone's grand staying on Facebook, you know, years after everyone's left, being like, no, I like Twitter. It's my thing. Even <laughs> Tumblr, for example. I've been on Tumblr since... 2007, I think, I'm still there. Not many people are, but I'm like, no, it's one of my places. I'm just going to stay here now. I'm tired.
0: And for this week's Food Neighbourhoods, we have a seafood recipe by Denis Pedron, the executive chef of Milan's
4: Langosteria Restaurant Group. Hello, everyone. My name is Denis Pedron and uh, I am a corporate executive chef at uh, Langosteria today langosteria group counts uh, six restaurants in milano paraggi near portofino and uh, in paris inside uh, Cheval Blanc we are fine dining restaurants specialized in uh, seafood today I'd like uh, to tell you about uh, on the latest recipe we have created it's called black grouper Chateaubriand so this recipe is a very simple but delicious. We use the heart of the fillet of the black grouper. consider it one of the tastiest fish. Our grouper comes from Galicia. Now we cook it in using a robata grill, a Japanese method of cooking with the heat and fumes and the charcoal, with the give of aromas and flour typical of the preparation on the grill. We grill it uh, about 20 minutes over this low to medium, which give of aromatic and flavor typical of the preparation on the grill. We grill it for about 20 minutes over this low to medium. After being cooked, it is a served in a single large cut. We take off the skin from the fillet and we season. It with uh, maldon salt and uh, salmorillo oil. Salmorillo is an aromatic extra virgin oil from Puglia made uh, with uh, chopped herbs and celery. This dish usually serves two people. We like to pair the fish with mashed potato and the grilled pak choy. For the mashed potato, we use a ratte variety of potato. We boil them and then sift them we add salted butter using one part of potato and one part melted butter. And for the Pak Choy, we slice in half and then grill them. Also to the Robata for about five to six minutes on low flame. For this dish, perfect wine is Pinonero from Boudou's uh, Cadel Bosco which uh, location in Lombardia, north of Italy. I hope you like the recipe. I hope to see you soon in Langosteria. Ciao!
0: And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.